you know, how did it get to this point where it just accelerated and got worse? Well, I would like to point the inflection point, I would say it would be 15 years ago when we really turned to patient satisfaction. And I'm not saying that that was a wrong thing to do. I just think the way we did it was incorrectly. We geared a lot of our satisfaction surveys like they do in business for the short term without regards to the fact that most people might actually not have insight into what drives their long-term brand loyalty or, or net promoter support. Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search The Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So in this episode, I wanted to talk about healthcare inefficiencies. Our system is obviously not the best it could be, <laughs> to state it lightly. And there's obviously a lot of problems and, and things we could fix. But first, it's a matter of identifying what exactly is not running optimally, what's inefficient, and then we can start to talk about what solutions might be and where we can go from where we are today. So I thought I'd talk to my friend Mike, who is a doctor and has been in the medical system for a few years dealing with medical records and patients and things like that and gets to see it from the inside. So I just wanted to get his perspective on the situation and, and see what he thought about it. So welcome, Mike, to the show. Thanks for having me. Let me actually just start by asking you, has your your view of healthcare changed at all from before you were a doctor, like when you were younger, to then going through med school and residency and into the actual healthcare industry? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, I just had this vague notion, I remember when I was a kid, that I wouldn't have to worry about disease when we got older because we'd have fixes for all of it. <laughs> and I was in third grade, and then as I got older and, you know, life happens and people get sick around you and you have to deal with the healthcare system, and then if you have the mixed fortune of becoming sick yourself, you discover that medicine is not magic like they make it out to be on television. And it's just a bunch of people trying their best without space medicine or super technology. It's just a lot of study and hard work and human effort. And there's no shortcut for that. And I, I thought that like we would have, I just had this vague notion in fifth grade grade school, I remember we were talking about all the advances in healthcare and how they were going to be growing organs and the genome would unlock all of our potential and that we have gene cures for diseases and genomics would apply to pharmacology and we'd have precise medication regimens and all that. And now it's literally like 20 years later. <laughs> it seems like that has gotten more and more out of reach than ever. And it's not because we've not made any progress on it. It's because the more knowledge we acquire, the more that goal is shown to be kind of not fully formed. And I think that's analogously a long way of saying that that's also how probably my understanding of American healthcare, healthcare in general, has kind of transformed as well from when I went into med school and when I came out. 
did residency and got involved and tried to advocate in different ways and got frustrated with different aspects of the system, only to realize that the, the system's in place for a reason and it evolved out of something. And, you know, we're all struggling to see where it's going to go eventually because we know that it's going to face a higher burden than it ha ever has before, especially with the baby boomers and the upcoming millennials and the, the stress on the system is going to be huge. And every epidemiologic study has just shown that all the non-communicable diseases, lifestyle diseases like diabetes, cholesterol, blood pressure, that they're only set to bloom in, in the next few coming decades. So, so I'm just thinking that what you're saying, how your perspective changed as you got into the system, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz where you, you peel back the curtain and look past the veil and you, you see how it is behind the curtain. Except in this case, there's no one behind the curtain. <laughs> there's a bunch of lights going off and smoke coming out, and you're looking around for someone to be trying to correct the madness, and there's no one there <laughs> in charge of it. There's no one driving the plane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's also part of the issue with not just American healthcare, but American conception of wealth, which plays into healthcare as well, is that the mandate of wealth is that wealth goes where it's merited and that by putting wealth in places, it will make it automatically more prosperous and better. Our healthcare is the most expensive healthcare in the, in the world, and yet we're not seeing the returns based on that, that investment that we're putting into it. One in every $7 of our gross domestic product went into our healthcare in 2017. That is a ridiculous amount of growth compared to, I think it was like 30 or 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the healthcare budget was like maybe 120th, 130th or something. So it's it's just grown ridiculously. And the only solution we have, because we don't have anyone driving this plane, is just to put more money into it. And that by virtue of putting money into it, it will get better. It is crazy. And it, it hasn't been working. I have had a lot of firsthand experience with that. <laughs> that actually segues into the first question that I was going to ask you because I'm kind of curious what you think maybe the heavy investment on a dollar basis and yet not the return in terms of health quality or health levels. I really feel like our healthcare system really focuses on treating symptoms, treating after the fact when someone already has diabetes or what, or heart disease or whatever as opposed to prevention and cutting things off before they even get started. And it seems like that would be a much more cost-effective way to create health. Exactly. That would be the intelligent way to appropriate our healthcare spending. You have to ask yourself, like, why Why is the majority of our cost for every, everything that like you said, why is it all being driven up for all those symptomatic issues? And that really has accelerated in the last decade or last 12 or 13 years, especially after, oddly enough, there was a push for quality, another return on our investment. And you're, you're going to see this theme come up again multiple times, and it comes down to a failure in the, this neo-capitalistic notion of the mandate of wealth, that you don't have to think about where you put money, it'll just go there and make it better. One example of this is a quality measure that came out about 13, I think it was like 13, 15 years ago, 
when they made pain the fifth vital sign. And there was a report that came out from, I think it was CMS and, and Medicare. They said that they found that there was a huge cost burden associated with people coming back to the ER, coming back to the hospital for pain and not being given a, enough pain medication. And there was, there was a huge crusade then to drive down this cost associated with bounce backs because the same thing had been occurring. They noticed the same thing 15 years ago. They hey said, hey, since the 50s, our healthcare costs have been ballooning and we're, our spending is accelerating the amount of quality returns. And this whole thing was preceded by the push for patient satisfaction in terms of quality healthcare. Because there's, there's roughly two approaches. If you're going to divide the answer into getting a return on your investment, it can be either you make the healthcare better or you make the perception of the healthcare better. <laughs> Actually, let me tell a funny story yeah. on that one. So I heard about an airport where they were getting a lot of complaints on passengers who were waiting for their bags yeah. too long because as they would get off the airplane and go to the baggage claim and it would take them almost no time to get to the baggage claim. Meanwhile, it would take like 10 or 15 minutes for the people to get the bags off the plane to the baggage mm -hmm. carousel. So what they ended up doing was just having the planes arrive at a gate that was way on the other end of the airport mm -hmm. so that it took the people like 15 minutes to get to the baggage carousel <laughs> claim. And then they stopped getting complaints. That's <laughs> so, hilarious. But that's, that's true, you so, know, and that's a perception. And then when people rank it higher, their perception of that service, you know, so you have to ask yourself, like, we're spending more money on fuel. You add that up over a year, that's not an insubstantial amount of fuel that's wasted on driving people back and forth. So technically, there's a waste, but then people are rating you higher. But then you also have to ask, though, how does that really affect your net promoter score? Did that negative valuation affect your net promoter score? Or did you create that negative effect on your net promoter by prompting people and getting them to think like, hey, I really didn't like waiting for my bag. Whereas before, they just might have been vaguely miffed, you know, but they were okay with it. But by measuring it or by attempting to measure it, you created an issue. It's a question that we face in healthcare all the time with whether or not you choose to order a test or work something up is, what's your pretest likelihood? And so your pretest likelihood of people's overall quality being affected by the weight of the carousel, not huge, but someone, you know, someone, some analyst somewhere needed to make their quota or do something. And so they made, did that study, you know, and they made life difficult for the rest of us. But the marketing solution to that study, like you said, was to, <laughs> it was, it was ingenious, was to eliminate the weight by creating preoccupation with a, a transit. And then there's another way to solve that issue, which was Rory, which if Rory Sutherland, one of the great psychologists and marketers in business were to approach it, he would say, what you should do is you should fill the baggage carousel lounge with attractive models offering uh, hors d'oeuvres, carrying hors d'oeuvres around on plates. You know, instead of spending money on fuel, hire a few attractive models for half the price carrying hors d'oeuvres on plates to people and then see how that affects their, their experience. And they might not want to leave the baggage carousel area, you know, but yeah. like, have you changed the service tangibly? And net promoter being like what you're aiming for is that at the airport or the airline, you know, did any of those things really change the long term or the short term net promoter? So in the short term, those quality measures and perception of quality, unfortunately, we're not gearing a lot of those studies for the long term. And long-term trends are, are affected mostly by 
overall business practices like Southwest, which is being able to provide consistent and affordable prices without, you know, hamstringing themselves in the short term, worrying about whether or not someone got ticked that they had to wait five extra minutes for their bag at the carousel. Well, what I think is tricky about healthcare is that what might be best for someone might not be the most desirable exactly. for that person. And that's what I wanted to come around and, and answer your question with. And you're saying, you know, how did it get to this point where it just accelerated and got worse? Well, I would like to point the inflection point, I would say it would be 15 years ago when we really turned to patient satisfaction. And I'm not saying that that was a wrong thing to do. I just think the way we did it was incorrectly. We geared a lot of our satisfaction surveys like they do in business for the short term without regards to the fact that most people might actually not have insight into what drives their long-term brand loyalty or, or net promoter score. And that's not <laughs> a bad thing. It's just we got to keep that in mind when we're designing our systems is that, you know, is we do want to take people's feedback seriously, but we also want to keep it in perspective of the whole system and how the whole system runs. And now what's happened is, I'll guide you through it, is we had the focus on patient satisfaction which led to the discovery that there was a huge dissatisfaction with pain control that was also correlated with a huge expense in terms of ER visits and returns for reappraisal for uncontrolled pain after surgeries and hospitalizations. So what did that lead to? That led to one of the most ill-advised and poorly conceived campaigns of all time, which was the pain is the fifth vital sign. And this is the ultimate example of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. The fifth vital sign was that we were, in addition to heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and temperature, is we were going to start asking people what their pain was. It was going to be mandated at every visit. Every visit you went to, you, the nurse or the person doing the CNA, the LVN doing the intake would be asking the patient, hey, how much is your pain today? Regardless of whether or not you even have pain, they would ask you, what's your pain? And so whole patient mindset was shifted. It was the whole patient focus was shifted from what am I here for today I'm here for my heart failure. I'm here for my blood pressure. I'm here for my lab results. And I'm here for all that. Oh, and I'm here for my pain. It really shifted the whole patient mindset, the whole patient perce perception. And not only that, but it shifted the provider culture and the provider perception as well. It sounds like a, a pharmaceutical conspiracy exactly. to me. Thank you for that segue because that's what I wanted to get into is guess who, guess who took advantage of this opportune moment and capitalized on it in a big way? And that was Big Pharma. Eli Lilly, Purdue Pharma, and all the rest of them got in on this, and they went gangbusters. They lobbied hard, and they lobbied fast, and they got all their prettiest, shiniest reps out to all the doctor's offices, telling them that, hey, you know, OxyContin, it's not associated with abuse, and there's no way to get dependent or hooked on it. And the pain limit, the pain ceiling is unlimited, and you can go up on as high as people can tolerate. And they told us all these different things, which each one of them had been debunked like, overwhelmingly over the last decade. And I remember when I was in med school, we actually had a little controversy on our pain lecture because we had a person who came through and they didn't disclose that they were vested in one of these companies or a rep with one of the representation companies. And they tried to pass it off like they didn't have any competing interests. And they're basically telling us, Matt, you can give as much pain meds as people can tolerate, you know, or as much as they want. That's the right answer. And we had our wow. our uh, dean for the school of pharmacy in the back shaking his head. He's like, uh-uh. And, and, you know, as students, we're just like, what? And, you know, but he's writing the test questions. Because, <laughs> you know, that's how it is. <laughs> Man, that sounds yeah, so correct. Yeah, we questions. 
So it was hugely corrupt because, and that's another issue with corruption. It comes down to the, our modern conception of capitalism, which isn't capitalism, it's piracy in its most pure form. And it's a piracy that, that preys on the institutions and people that enriches it. It's a parasite, which it's uh, the Ouroboros, the snake that eats itself. So it's, um, and that's a whole other thing, but it's manifest in its most horrifying way in healthcare and the, in the system that's supposed to be manifesting all of our best qualities and our caring and our compassion for each other, you know, is crumbling and falling apart because the capitalist forces, which are supposed to be driving industry and innovation are actually cannibalizing our poorest and our most vulnerable. And that's because healthcare at its most fundamental should never have been an industry. It should be an infrastructure because infrastructure is what you put in place to protect and develop wealth when it comes to your most valuable resources in their distribution. And in this case, our human resources, I would argue, are far and away our most valuable. But we've sold them off to industry by pretending that healthcare can be a successful industry. And it's not. But anyway, what happened is these corporate capitalists at the big pharma companies, they seize that shining opportunity because some smart young fellow noticed that, like, hey, we can make a lot of money here. And what was that opportunity? Well, you'll, you'll notice that there's been a, a pattern of abuse, of corrosion in our the fiber and the moral and, and capitalistic and economic fiber of our society when a corporation is given carte blanche to take advantage of human compunction, human weakness. So we were designed to seek out certain limited goods without limit back in the day. But now, of course, that we have ready access to fulfill all our whims and compunctions, it's obviously not healthy that we have the desire to eat high starch, high fat diets and, you know, and just overwhelm our dopamine, dopamine receptors. Because we have all the drugs and all the food and all the sex to overwhelm all that all the time. And capitalism is an amazing system for mobilizing resources and initial resource mobilization. But where it fails at is a sustainable growth in the long term or maintenance in the long term because it can only grow. So when you've reached capacity in a certain system like healthcare or something else, the only way to market growth when you're being evaluated in a publicly traded space like so many of these industries are, like big pharma, is you have to find an addiction market. Like in alcohol, alcohol and tobacco are addiction markets, alcohol especially. You know that the majority of your profits are going to be coming from 8% of the population who have a problem with your product. So what do you do? You find all the ways to market to them and technically everyone else, but really to them. And it's the same thing with opiates. Big Pharma went into this knowing that opiates were addictive. One in eight people will become addicted if exposed to opiates, have the right synaptic map that it'll fit like a key and it will knock their dopamine circuit every time. That's a, a huge problem when you've made it your new national health care measure, you know, to measure pain is a vital sign. And when you're telling doctors lies that these aren't addictive and there's no side effects to them. And now we're facing the sobering reality 15 years later, well after the time when we woke up and realized that this is a problem, what we're doing. But the, the genie's are well out of the bottle on this one, and it's going to be really hard to put it back in because patients have become accustomed to this and it's their right. 
and it has been my never-ending nightmare every day when I wake up to go in and talk with people and get yelled at and have them cry and break down and wail and throw things and curse and have to get security every day when I have to explain to people that I have to take them off their opiate medications because they're being treated with the wrong thing for their pain. There are not many people who are going to be doing it like that. There are not many people who want to go in every day and get yelled at. Physicians as a group, we're a very diverse group of people. There's not, there's not a whole lot of pigeonhole statements you can make or stereotypes. You can stick to the bunch of us because from ER doctors to surgeons to psychiatrists, that's a very diverse group of people. And each of them are even within those specialties are there's a lot of different personality types and people who go into it. But on the whole, if you were to, if you wanted to hold us to one thing, physicians, they want to look smart and they don't want to look dumb and they want to make people happy and they want to, they want to, you know, they're the, the kids who, if they weren't always making people say, wow, you know, they were the people who wanted that. So you take someone who has a pathological desire to please people <laughs> like physicians and you put them in a, a situation where they have the power to prescribe this powerful candy that people want. And you have a, a whole industrial complex breathing down their neck, telling them that it's okay and it's encouraged. And then you have CMS and, and Medicare changing their quality standards and their metrics to reflect that satisfaction is an inter- integral part of your future success. And you're not just compelled, you are handcuffed into giving these medications. And a lot of these doctors who came about and they trained in the time when, and they were doing their residency in the time when this was breaking stuff, you know, and like everyone got Percocet and Oxycontin and all this, all this stuff. You see them still, they're still loath to do proper pain prescriptions. And it's everywhere, everywhere. All the specialists, even pain management, even people who specialize in pain, they're sometimes giving the craziest regimens. And that's because there's no time, first of all, to address someone's heart failure, someone's liver failure, someone's alcoholism, someone's all, all, all their issues, and then try and do the conversation, the come to Jesus talk that has been neglected with the previous thousand hospital visits. We're either just going to drive out all the people who, are, who care about people and are willing to do that, or the system is going to implode or, or both. But it's not sustainable right now. That is a very bleak and cynical, if not jaded, uh, perspective. It's, <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah. It's, I wouldn't <laughs> say it's – I don't think I'm cynical or jaded because I still believe that it can all change, you know? Well, okay. Then Pardon? let me ask you that then. What are practical steps that could actually be taken to move things in a more healthy direction? Well, like, like you said, it, it comes down system. to what are the things that we want to invest in? We want to invest intelligently in our healthcare, and what does that mean? So, for every healthcare dollar you spend, you want to spend more of it on the prevention side, right? Because the sobering reality that I, I had to come to grips with after I started my medical education was I had to apologize to my my ten year old self because we do not live in an age of miracle cures. If there's a bad thing that happens to you, the best you're going to more than likely result in some kind of physical, physiological, or anatomical change that will, will permanently change you, and then your body's just not going to be the same afterwards. Uh, and that's true for most serious illness, pretty much all serious illness, is there's no going back to the way your body was before. And I just always had this notion, like, I, gee, wow, we were walking on the moon just a decade or two ago, and with the way we're going, like, I won't have to worry about that, <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> I feel like I've heard a was it a, a Seinfeld stand up bit or something where it's like we made it to the moon. How could we not figure out how to grow yeah, a new finger? I, I don't. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that a lot of other people. The, I think the vast majority of people who didn't care to spend their lives on learning healthcare and might have that notion as well, you know, and a lot of them are surprised by it. And I deal with that on a daily basis, people who are trying to navigate the healthcare system who are new to it. Healthcare is one of those things that we highly prioritize, but we don't want to think about. And those, that comes down to psychological reasons too. You know, it, it, it reflects our mortality, it reflects our shortcomings, it reflects a lot of our insecurities. And avoidance is often the simplest thing. And unfortunately, in healthcare, if you want to invest in proper prevention, you have to get people engaged before it's too late. A lot of times people are, for a lot of different reasons, money or fear or and then confusion with the whole, with the nature of the setup of the healthcare system itself. They don't engage with it until damage is done and they can't correct it. It's just very interesting how you make the connection between patient satisfaction and then eventually over the course of a number of different events to an opioid crisis because of pain management through just giving people what they want. And what people want is not having pain. But it's kind of like the kid who says like, hey, I want the candy before I go to sleep and I don't want to brush yeah. my teeth. <laughs> but if you think about it on a physiological basis, pain is a good thing in the sense that your body is telling you something yeah. that you don't want. And like, if you don't have pain when you cut off your arm, you're not going to be scared to cut off your arm. And uh, pain is, is a great metaphor pain. here. And it's not just pain, but what you're touching on is symptomatic care versus preventive care. Uh, we should be investing in preventive care, but if you want to put the problem in the most broadest possible terms, there's a lot of issues facing healthcare, but in the most broadest possible terms, it comes down to a misappropriation of our, of our resources in symptomatic care versus preventative care, truly preventative care. The most preventative care, of course, being primordial care, being the investment in the first thousand days of life through inception, through, you know, three years old, and then leading all the way up to community planning, town and city planning that fosters health of communities and things like that. And then leading all the way up to regular primary prevention efforts which is, you know, screening for blood pressure and obesity and all this stuff. All the stuff that goes along with metabolic syndrome, which is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, and and obesity. And that's the number one thing. The number one useful thing to track at a, a patient's visit, if you're tracking vital signs, isn't pain. All the other vital signs are good, but the number one thing I track between my visits, apart from blood pressure, because they need to go to the ER if they're in hypertensive crisis, which a lot of them are sometimes. But number one thing I track is weight. And, you know, they say weight is just a number, but at the same time, it's probably the most useful number because for my heart failure patients, it tells me when they're decompensating. And then for all my other patients, it tells me if they're really walking the walk and uh, I, can, I can show them, like I pull up a graph, I show their weight, how it's changed over time. And I show them like, and I think that's the most useful thing I do every visit because then it allows me to launch into a conversation where I actually address primary care. What primary care is, it's not very high tech. It's not this waving a tricorder and doing a magical diagnosis treatment. It's not magical at all. It's just me telling common sense things to people, which is eat greens and beans, get moderate activity exercise, at least 150 minutes a week, 
try and make it aerobic if you can, run if you can, walk if you can. And it's just that simple. And there's a lot of nuanced ways to deliver that to people depending on what their limitations are. But it's hygiene. It's hygiene, hygiene, hygiene is the number one thing. What hygiene is, is hygiene entails all the habits, the proper habits that promote good health. The number one thing being metabolic hygiene, and that comes down to diet and activity. There's a whole lot of ignorance and there's a whole lot of unaddressed issues in that regard. And it's not just ignorance as well that's a that's a barrier. There's also investment as a society, how we invest in our communities and each other. And, and we've basically tacitly endorsed obesogenic environments by pursuing the car for the last 100 or so years as a, as a viable means of transportation. And it has done nothing except poison and pollute our, our cities and our institutions ever since its inception. And not to mention the one of the largest public health menaces more than guns or anything else is the car in terms of sheer carnage per year. Opiate crisis and, and firearms and all the rest of that are dwarfed by it. But to get back to topic, like you're saying, pain is one example of symptomatic versus preventative care, where we've, in the last 15 years, unfortunately, we put our all our eggs in the symptomatic basket and we saw where that happened. But it's not just in pain that we've done that too. Every other potential issue that is a symptom or a complaint that a patient has is there's the the overwhelming desire to make it go away, make it better with that visit. There's the whole idea that like I will get rated poorly if I don't give this patient an antibiotic for their sore throat or if I don't give them Sudafed for their stuffy nose or their allergies instead of addressing the root causes for all those things. So common symptoms being pain, congestion, acid reflux, constipation, all these things, you know, they're all symptoms. They're not diseases, they're symptoms. And the onus should be on the physicians in the healthcare system to have the appropriate amount of time to properly work up the diseases and to treat the underlying disease entities instead of allowing them to spiral and escalate and spill over, which is what happens. Because there's not just um, patients have the, uh, they have a certain amount of agency. It's a, I call it a deceptive amount of agency because they can drop providers and go between healthcare systems, but it's really at the cost of their own health. It's really nice when you find a physician who is actually, who actually cares about you, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard because they're all overworked because the system is so horribly designed. Mike, I'm going to jump in here. We're running a bit long, so I'm going to go ahead and cut it off and we'll continue talking next week with part two and just continue the discussion. But let's uh, wrap it up here with part one. And uh, thanks for joining us. Catch us next week on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>